Today we're talking with Sarah Clark. I'm Demetrios Brinkman, and you're listening to Are You a Robot? I'm Sarah Clark. I'm a data protection and cybersecurity governance risk and compliance specialist, and I'm delighted to be here. Just in case this is your first time tuning in, we are a series that aims to tackle the greatest challenges that stem from AI and related technologies. And the way that we're doing that is by gathering the best and brightest minds in their respective fields to come on here and talk with us about how they see the current state of affairs and if there's any best practices that we can take with us as we move throughout this AI-engulfed world. I will mention that we are not stopping the conversations here. If you would like to join us and continue Whatever you enjoyed about these conversations, you can do so in our Slack community, which you will find a link to in the description below. And last but not least, I want to give a huge shout out to our sponsor this season for Humanity. They are doing third-party audits to create this fabric of trust, creating trustworthy AI ecosystem is so difficult. And I want to thank them because all of these amazing people that I've talked to on this season, and I've actually interviewed quite a few people from the collective of For Humanity in prior seasons. Every time I talk to somebody that is involved with the For Humanity project, project I come out the other end a better person for that. So if you want to see what For Humanity is doing and get involved or get yourself some of them third-party audits, you can click the link below. Now let's jump into the full conversation with Sarah Clark. Are you a robot? Sarah, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. And there is a lot for us to talk about but we should probably start with how you came to be where you're at right now. What was your journey like to become a data protection specialist and security compliance, all of this? How did that happen? All, all of that stuff, yeah. yeah. Um, well, from my point of view, it was a slightly circuitous route. I, I did a business degree, um, motivated by doing something general because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And in the interim, I got very interested in computers but it never felt like an option for me it always felt like you know uh, kids who started to, to code when they were teenagers that ship had passed um uh, actually things things pivoted I ended up starting in IT on a help desk when I was 27 and then moved through security um into governance because I could see we, everything was so reactive I was working in a big firm they had capacity to actually try and get out of that firefighting mode and I could had some ideas of how to do it and that's how I ended up being one of the people who was very early specialist in in cybersecurity and then I, I pivoted to data protection because cybersecurity is very much necessarily pragmatically about the bottom line for the company and I was always very focused on human rights and sort of working out how we could protect the people who were being described by the data which brought me naturally towards data protection, where that is the focus of the, of the law and regulation, especially in the, in Europe. And then I, I became specialist in that a couple of years before the GDPR came into force. And then um, mm. throughout all that time, I had a deep, deep interest in AI. So you mentioned one thing right there that I want to zoom in on real fast, and that's going from firefighting mode into non-reactive mode and looking ahead 
And you started doing that by going into the data governance. Can you give us some examples of what exactly that was and how you were able to see the way out of this reactive mode into being more proactive? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in a big business, I think it's the first place it would have been felt because the, there was very little budget. You maybe had one person who did security, one person who did data protection, a lot of other places, but in financial services, you had more people doing more things, but usually not very well funded. And there was a boom bust cycle. You got lots of money after a breach, you got lots of money after an audit, didn't get lots of money the rest of the time. So um, what I saw is that we just had to shift everything left. We, we had to start um, identifying the stakeholders in the businesses who were having the bright ideas, who were managing the change portfolios, who were in control of procurement. And we needed to ask good questions at the right time that was simple enough to democratise that early governance journey and start to see our pipeline. So you start to paint a picture of the, the work that's coming towards you with a risk-based prioritization. You know, if it's shed loads of data and it's in iffy countries and it's got a five nines availability requirement, then you're going to do it first. It doesn't mean you're going to de-scope other stuff. You're maybe just going to do it later. Or you're going to say, if you've got appetite to do all of these change projects as a deep dive assessment, um, if you're going to do all of these vendors, go and kick the tires on site, then please can I have 10 full-time staff? or you're going to have to wait three years to get it done. Mm. Or if you're a project, you can fund it. That that was the kind of creating the translation layer mm. to do that. Yeah. And so it's like being realistic about these goals or about these needs and not having to, like you say, it's feast or famine for most of the time. When there's a breach, then you get a bunch of money and you need to cover things up or you need to uh, sew up these tears in the organization and then when things are running high you get forgotten about and so that, that's yeah. really interesting we're the goalkeepers basically yeah. <laughs> yeah the last line of defense that's totally totally makes sense so the other thing that you said that i find really interesting and i i would love to center our conversation around this today and really dive into it is how you look at these ideas of data privacy and human rights and how that is a human right. And so maybe we can go into that a little bit more right now and how is data privacy connected to human rights? Well, in terms of the, um, uh, in terms of Europe, the Charter of Human Rights, Fundamental Human Rights, you've got, um, sorry, I need, I've messed that up. Um, in the Council of Europe, you have privacy as a human right. Uh, it is something that's protected. And it's misconstrued in a lot of places as secrecy. This isn't about not sharing your information. This isn't about not allowing people to, to see you existing in the world, even potentially inviting them into your home. This is about it being a choice. This is about it not interfering with your personal and home life. This is about it being... Uh, something where trade-offs are something that you've had an opportunity to balance. And you, even if consent isn't appropriate, because perhaps it's something that needs to happen, that if you denied consent, something fundamental couldn't carry on, like a national security requirement or protection for children, that you should be aware of what those controls are, why those controls are in place, when they're operating. So that's how it relates to human rights for me. But data protection is a broader 
uh, theme is is you sometimes people assume it's just privacy it's not it's protection of all human rights that could be impacted by use or misuse or compromise or disclosure of data personal data um and uh, privacy is just one of those rights so you could have you could have a whole bunch of other rights impacted by that yeah can you talk about some of these other rights and how we're being impacted by this use or misuse of our data well, I think a, a huge one that intersects with the, with the question of AI, which you know, I'm very focused on AI because of my work with For Humanity at the moment. I volunteer quite a lot of time on, on this kind of risk and governance side with For Humanity as an organisation who's building AI audit and AI governance solutions um, is um, around the right to be viewed as innocent until you're proven guilty. Um, and that one has come to the fore dramatically from my perspective with um, the standardization of people that's necessary in order to process people at scale because machines aren't as clever as we think they are uh, as they are sold to us to be um, and when things aren't desperately clever they need things to be standardized and in this case we're standardizing people which drives out whole rafts of exceptions and if you're not managing exceptions effectively you're telling people who they are and how they are based on that over-standardization. Um, and then you're inviting people to put up with that until they can prove themselves to be the unique individual they are. And I, I see that trend as one of the more concerning things going on, that the exception management hasn't been innovated and populated and funded anywhere near at the pace that we're innovating um, bulk data processing. That's such a great point. And it's something that I've talked with many, many people on here about, and one of the really interesting arguments I've heard for this or paths that a conversation has taken, and I would love to get your point of view on it, is this idea that we are definitely creating bias in our AI systems. And we are not, there's, there's no way that we can have an AI system that is completely fair, right? And we can strive for it, but at the same time, the different biases that we're putting into AI, they are just reflective of the biases that we already have as humans. And so if you're looking at a specific situation, and I was talking to, to um, John Zerilli about this, and he just came out with a great book called uh, the AI citizen, citizen's guide to artificial intelligence. And one thing that he mentioned was in the case of compass, which I imagine you, uh, you've heard of, and it's for all those that are listening, it's a program in the U S that gives judges a recommendation on if a, an offendant is going to reoffend the probability of that person to reoffend, and so what he was talking about is when you're creating these AI systems, yes, they are very biased, and it's come out, and it's very, very clear, and there's been a lot of uproar about it being biased, and the training that they've done with the data is, is not necessarily the best, and there's a lot of problems with that that we could go into, but the argument that he had, and I thought it was a really interesting way of looking at it is that there are biases that were happening anyway in the judicial system. 
And now it's just coming to light because we've put them into machines and we're starting to be able to inspect them a little bit more. And I'm totally paraphrasing. And I'm sure if John was here, he would want to say a few more words on that. But that is the, the gist of what I understood from it. And so maybe we can talk about that a little bit and how you feel about this idea of basically when we're starting to codify things, we're just codifying our bias into them and they were happening anyway, but now they're happening at scale and now we're able to see them more clearly. Yeah, I, I could not agree with yourself and John Moore is that we are going to get novel insights from AI because it's going to see correlations, it's going to join dots that um, because of the, the speed and, and bulk of data it's processing that we may not have historically spotted. But it is basing those dots and the connections between them on our historical store of knowledge, the historically collected data set. And um, in the same way that people like Caroline Criado Perez have shown that you know females weren't often factored into a lot of experiments and a lot of history so you have you know gender bias you have enormous racial bias for for comparable reasons that people just weren't surfaced in literature and in science in the same way people of color that you are layering those correlations on on top of that statistical and proportional baseline um and some of those things mean that they're not representative of the modern day um, because the world has moved on past the lion's share of tail data we have available, although that's correcting itself, you know, by terabytes a day. Um, but there is that fundamental point of if you want to do better than the baseline of bias that you're identifying, if you've adjusted yourself to what the status quo is, a, which lens are you looking through to decide what a comparison to the status quo is? Whose status quo, whose current reality are you looking at? And secondly, what is the desirable aiming point? And those two things um, are where an, a whole lot of very ambitious work in AI is, is falling over. That there's a there's a lot of circling back to social sciences going, you know, now now we've normalized this data. We've actually, you know, we're on the really duly diligent end of bias remediation. We're pretty sure this is representative of what's going on now. We've we've spoken to all the right people and understood how how the world is proportionally working in these terms. But where do we want to aim for? What does a good society look like? What, what is a good outcome? And that gets into the area of philosophy and it gets into the area of ethics and it gets into the area of politics and governance. And that's the part that I think scares a lot of people. That um, who are making these decisions about what the best future looks like? And it is still massively disproportionately uh, young white men. Such a huge point is that we get to effectively create this by the systems that we're putting into place, we get to create our future, but who are the ones that are getting to choose that? And who are the ones that are creating the systems that will have the repercussions down the line? So coming back a little bit, because I went on a, a, kind of a tangent there with you, but I appreciate you uh, talking to me about that. But coming back to this idea about data privacy, 
Do you have advice on how we can protect our data? And then the follow-up question to that, I guess I'll give you two at once and take them at whatever order you want. <laughs> but the other one that I've talked to someone about uh, a month ago was that people with very common names, sometimes they they get confused in the databases. And so all of a sudden you're getting rejected for a loan because you have horrible credit or something, but it turns out that the database just confused you with someone else. And so then this other person has really bad credit and then you're having the repercussions of that. And it's really hard to clean that from your record. And so those kind of mess ups, I think I, I would love to know, like, do you have any remedies for those situations? So basically what's a great way or, or any advice on how we can protect our privacy and, and then other ways that when or if things do spiral a little out of control or were those edge cases, are there any hot takes on that? Um, I think that's that's two really big questions. Um, and I think in terms of protecting our privacy, um, I mean, I, I've got I've got two girls now, a teen and a tween, who have grown up with their mum constantly saying to them what it's what it's a good idea to share and what not to share online. So uh, unless the site really needs it, nothing has their correct date of birth, their correct name. It, I encourage them to put the correct year in because I uh, want to take advantage of, of decent age related controls, but, and they don't share any personal data with people. Um, so they have, they only ever share what's the minimum required to get the job done. I'm the same with, with deliveries. Um, uh, you know, I have things, I had something delivered yesterday to sister Pearl, you know, I, I, I like, like to change up my titles and stuff. It, it amuses my postie. So I just I went for the I went for the religious designation this time just as a just as a change. I'm Lady Penelope on something. I can't remember which site that is, but anyway. Um just it, it's oh, I'm not... gonna start doing that totally. That is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it 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 really makes not a massive amount of substantive difference, but I know if you have anomalies in a data set, they would likely discard me as a, a mucked up record in aggregation. Uh, I would be less valuable as a clean data record. So, and I amuse, as I said, Sean, my postie and I always compare notes. Um, but more to the point, things like um, multi-factor authentication, using codes on your phone uh, when you're logging onto sites and that kind of thing. That may not sound like a privacy protection, but it absolutely is. Because I think the biggest risk to privacy is, is being, um, uh, well, no, there's two. One is the, the biggest risk to privacy from um, bad actors compromising things is, is you getting credentials um, lifted in a breach. Some of that you can't control because it's down to the corporates locking down their Amazon buckets and generally having decent security and decently handling potential breaches or ransomware incidents. Um, the other one is thinking about using privacy protective technology, using um, Quant and Startpage and other browsers and um, search engines that are less hungry for data um, and email packages like ProtonMail, for instance. It comes with a little bit of a, an overshadow of perception that bad actors prefer to use those things, but um, as with all the debates over encryption or not encryption, um, it's it's a, it's an equal opportunities encryption solution. Um, 
But I mean, in terms of people appearing in databases where there might have been what we call fuzzy matching. My name's Sarah Clark. I've had that happen. Um, I had three girls in the school with the same name. I worked at a place where there were two girls with the same name who had the same birthday. Um, uh, I had a bailiff turn up at my door trying to collect a debt that had been sold to a debt collection agency from a utility company that was only about 70 or 80 pounds, but the bailiffs had been let into my stair. It was a tenement building and they were putting their foot in the door saying that we're going to claim goods to the sort of seven or eight times the value from me, who wasn't the debtor. I mean, me being me, what I did is I did a bit of OSINT. I actually found out the home address and the home phone number of the managing director of the debt company it had been sold to because I couldn't get any um, anything useful out of um, his company or no. from the utility company. Yeah, I did. Yeah, oh, I phoned him at home. And I said that I would lose his details when he wrote to me to apologise and confirmed that my details were no longer in his database. But I was just thinking about somebody elderly who would have just turned around and paid the money. And I'm sure it happens all the time. And these days, none of us can get through on the phone to anyone. No one one can speak to a person. And somebody was saying the other day, everyone's considering chatbots low risk. Well, you know, it depends. Is the chatbot optimising for your budget for human-led um, support, or is your um, chatbot optimizing for the actual level of exceptions that are being chucked out by the standardization in the pathways through, you know, click here if this is your problem, click there if that is your problem. And if you don't fit any of that, do you just fail out of the system? How much is attrition, you know? That story is amazing, first of all. And I have to say thank you on behalf of everyone, because that is something that I'm sure the company that was hounding you for money is probably going to think twice before they go trying to enforce that. But like you said, there are so many people, I imagine, that just say, all right, you know what? It's not me, but what can I do? I I got confused and now they're not going to leave me alone. So what am I going to do? I'll just pay the money. It's only 70 bucks. I'll get them off my back and then forget about it. And so luckily it was only 70 bucks for you or uh, I've heard of other things and there's potentially really life changing situations. Like I mentioned before, where you get denied a loan because you've been mixed up or you get other really, like you said, high risk kind of AI is being used and it's being trained on, or it's, it's looking at data from someone else's data set. And so that's huge. The other thing, but just before we move on, you mentioned two things that I have not heard that much before with how we can protect our privacy. And one was using different search engines and the other was using something like ProtonMail. Can you go into those a little bit more? I'm not sure I know about these different search engines that you speak of or ProtonMail. And so maybe you can enlighten me. Okay. So it basically, you you tend to have a, some advice when you go to a website. It says, um, do you click to accept cookies? And you go, yeah, I just want to get on and I want to do stuff. I don't. Uh, I always look at more details and I always turn off everything apart from essential cookies because that's how hard I made my life. But I also campaign for them not to make it that hard for everyone else. So I feel like I'm I'm justified in, in, in preaching a bit because I am fighting to, to get them to meet us where we we should be able to be. I mean, we have the, we're progressing towards the death of third party cookies where they are um, 
landing code on your computer to track you across different websites to link together your unique device identifier. You know, your phone is turned up on this website and that website and the other website and all of the little data points about what you're browsing, whether it be personal or just shopping. Um, you know, maybe you're browsing for a medical research, maybe you've had a health scare, all of that those data points are getting sucked up and auctioned off to the highest bidder behind the scenes. Historically, through things like the real-time bidding process, they go off to these intermediaries who then say, oh, I'm going to I'm gonna use the data about you I've just found out about to place ads on sites I'm pretty sure you're going to visit because we, we found out about you now. But it also forms part of a big aggregating ball of wool profile of you that's built up of all these little threads that have been put together, held by really big players like, like Google and Facebook and Amazon. Um, and these browsers tend, rather than me going through when I install um, something and trying to find all the places where I have to switch stuff off, like Google, trying to find the 17 different places to turn tracking off for various sites, for my activity, for my purchasing, for my YouTube, for <laughs> all those places and deciding on all those settings. A lot of these browsers act as a middleman they they cut them off at source so they're not um they're not allowing the more predatory um data sucking practices by default and one of those brave is one some people you know some people like it some people don't friend of mine works there i trust i trust his privacy efforts um it's generally reasonably well thought of but as i said start page is a is a search engine as well that you can use within any other browser just go to www.startpage.com and those all counteract those default data acquisition practices to an extent and offer you more private browsing opportunities the emails a similar thing um i something that was a bit of a, a, a breaking the the straw that broke the camel's back for me was I didn't actually realize that um, Google Gmail would trawl through all of your Gmail accounts to look for purchases and, and retain that information to profile you. I stupidly, but I don't think it's stupid. I think we all expect in a lot of ways just to have common human decency treat me how I would treat someone else. I wouldn't expect to trawl through someone's emails, even for what they call metadata. Um, I wouldn't expect someone to just tell me wherever they've been shopping for the last rest of their lives um that that kind of thing i i didn't like so I, I looked for first of all someone that didn't profile me with my email content i realized i could i could turn it off by the time i found out about it it was because they'd been caught <laughs> and decided they that wasn't very popular so they'd change it um but also encryption in transit so it's better um it's more privacy protective in the similar way the browser is for something like Proton Mail, but also you can have encryption in transit. And historically, scrambling your data in transit was something that you needed to be really quite tech savvy to do. You had to go and, and get something called a, a public private key pair, and you had to have something like PGP and you had to exchange keys. And yes, I did do that occasionally. I more often than not, I didn't. Um and so I've got something like Proton Mail that does some of that for me. Um, but it does come under attack because um, people see it as a place for criminals to hide. But for, for every criminal, you've also got a potentially a, a woman who's a victim of domestic violence or a whistleblower who's feeling very vulnerable at work or um, an activist who knows that they may be a target of the state that they're trying to secure human rights for them. Yes. 
And <laughs> that is such a razor thin line, right? Because you have, and you have to walk it. And I think that's probably one of the hardest parts about this whole discussion is that the more that you're able to protect yourself, the more, or it's not the more that you're able to protect yourself, just potentially these kind of technologies are being used for negative things, but they're also being used for positive things. So is, should we have that? Of course, actually, we definitely should, but how to keep it from getting this bad rap or how to have the good side and still be able to not have the downfalls of the bad side. Uh, I, I'm not sure if yes. I'm able to articulate properly this this idea. I think you are. You know what I'm getting at, but it's. I know I, exactly what you're getting at. Yeah. I know. I, there is no sweet spot. Mm. We have to have the people pushing for the access that is situationally required to tackle clear and present danger, to tackle assess threats with concrete guardrails, with limitations on duration for attention, with right to redress if they get the wrong person for some reason, when they have a lawful, justified, overseen reason to obtain data from somewhere that is otherwise strictly private. Um, you overlay that with the trust and the adequacy of oversight in a given regime. There are an awful lot of regimes, depending on your politics and whose interests you serve, that um, overstep that human rights boundary or come very close to it. Um, and in those situations, you would hope to be able to protect yourself. Um, that's the other side of the equation. I mean, something that's very difficult for me that I've wrestled with is I have good friends who I differ with dramatically politically, but part, a big part of their job is to police um, those areas of the web that are involved with child sexual abuse material. And when I met this particular person I'm thinking of, it's a, it's a veteran of, of policing these spaces. Um, they said, um, I, I said, well, so I, I guess you would prefer we didn't have any end-to-end -end encryption. And he said, no. But I do think that we have to be far more savvy about um, the exceptions that we're making. And, you know, his belief is that what we're mainly lacking is senior stakeholders and lawmakers and politicians who actually understand the implications enough to tread that line. That's where I think we've got a gap. That's where I think we've got a problem we can solve. I don't think anyone denies that there are situationally sensitive reasons why we need to concede privacy for a proportionate reason. Well, and it, it brings up this question that I asked uh, a few episodes ago, I think months ago, really, and it's the whole idea that when power is handed over or data is handed over to different organizations, like 
the police or whoever it may be in these situations, how can we make sure that it's only in that situation, right? And it's not just we're opening the floodgates and then now they have the ability to do this. And so they're going to start doing it. And I think we all can point to the, the NSA being able to look at a lot more of our data than they probably should have been able to because of 9-11 and the government or the organizations just overstepping when they, you give them an inch and they take a mile, that kind of thing. And so I feel like a lot of people don't necessarily trust. And that's why we would prefer to have this hard line and say, no, you should never be able to get it. But in fact, like you say, there's very, very important times that we definitely need to concede some of this data. And I don't think if, if the majority of people were polled and given the full story about this and they knew and they were given an option, should we or should we not be able to access a certain potential criminal's phone, or we know it's a convicted criminal, but we know that this person did it, but we want to, this getting access to someone's phone will give us more information and help us find uh, the people that were helping this crime. I think the majority of people would say, yes, we should be able to do it there. But because of so many liberties that have been taken, a lot of us, including myself, sometimes I would defer to the other side. Or most of the time I would just say, yeah, actually, you know what? I'd prefer you don't because then yeah, I'm not sure. Not. <laughs> yeah, but right. It's like, when are you going? You, so you do it this time and then you're going to do it for always or what's, what's going to happen? Yeah. I think it's, I started a monster thread um, on my personal Twitter account and became quite reactionary, reactionary around um, 2016. A couple of things happened in 2016, you know, starts with bro and rhymes with exit and um <laughs> and a certain president um <laughs> but with the, I, I have to drink every time I say that these days my other half gets so annoyed I don't want to uh, to overhear me but um I I've been watching passage of various different um surveillance bills and permissions to to surveil devices and there are always um political agendas uh, underneath it there's always a while we've got the opportunity we'll just get or while we've got access to data we'll keep some just in case and I think there's a learning curve going on amongst those um, services as much as there is in the rest of the population about what the capabilities of bulk analysis actually are what a value can you add with the kind of data that's accessible because we all know that the um the biggest challenge to getting the hoped for benefits out of um, an analysis, more straightforward analysis, but machine learning and AI is, is the, the structure and the cleanliness of, of the data, the quality of the data set. Um, uh, there's also um, that feast famine cycle going on inside public services is there the same as there is in, in corporate and other business life. And you've got an awful lot of people pulling very hard in a very, duly diligent direction, but you have a scarcity. The, the, the public sector doesn't pay a premium. So you, you tend to have a scarcity of the top specialists who can get this stuff done. That's, that's not across the board. There are a lot of people who do this as a duty. They really do take this on because it's the right thing to do. Um, but it's all about the oversight. 
It is all about the accountability of the oath of the site. We all have to trust at some point, the same way that um, we do with people who um, log on to networks that we may, might maintain. At some stage, we trust people and we just use monitoring response to pick up the pieces at the end of it. And um, we have to have monitoring and we have to have a right to redress and we have to have functioning checks and balances. Now, the oversight bodies have actually proven to be reasonably effective in the UK since people were caught out. Um, things have improved slightly. Um, but I'm that isn't the side that I work upon. I speak to some people sometimes who have more insight. But you, when you're concerned about the trajectory, as some people currently might be in a lot of regimes in Europe, and with things that we a lot of people were hoping had gone away when a certain somebody lost an election, but is still in the grassroots politics, then um, the kind of personal protections we've been talking about, the kind of precautions we've been talking about are worthwhile. Being mindly, mindful of the information you're sharing, how you're sharing it and who you're sharing it with. Um, but there's a lot of us working on the other side to try and bring, democratise that governance piece again, there are lots of people who are feeling debilitated who would desperately like to make pragmatic decisions to use less data and just for the right things, but largely they haven't got the means to understand the mechanisms available to them and what the risks are, what the implications are of overstepping. Yeah, and I say this so much, I'm a bit like a broken record sometimes on how many different use cases there are. So that complicates things even more and you may have an understanding of, okay, this is AI being used with computer vision. And then when you go into NLP, it's a different story altogether. And so to have someone who is not technical, you really have to dive into it and get technical. And that's basically the only option. You're not going to be able to do it from any other way. And, and so again, this is, I say this a bunch because I just interviewed John, but one of John Zerilli's reasons for writing the book that I mentioned earlier is that he had to do that as someone who was not technical. And so he said, all right, I'm going to make this book because this is all my learnings over the past like two or three years. So I want to help. It's basically getting everyone else up to speed in case they, they need to do this too. And so, like you said, there's, there's been some progress. We're seeing things that I guess it's just because it's so new still. And there's so many, it's just, we haven't had enough time to be with it and see what's going on and see how it's being used for good and bad that we're not able to understand fully the big picture and understand the implications of it. Would you say that's correct? Yeah, absolutely. But I think I think there's two things going on. Um, and I mean, I did the same job with, with blockchain when it came about. I, I researched and I spoke to a blockchain dev um one of the one of the um sort of novel coin developers to, to proofread something i wrote to help myself understand um what a blockchain was and more importantly what it wasn't you know the extent to which it was integrity preserving plumbing and um and not magic stardust to sprinkle over every storage solution um and you know that was very successful and i shared that because that you know, in the same way that John did. And I joined for humanity for the same reason John wrote his book is I wanted to understand where the edges of this were, where where the novel stuff started and where the traditional problems 
ended because the other side of this that I'm seeing is that that people are almost um, paralyzed by the um, hype headlights. They are forgetting that good old procurement due diligence, good old defense and depth for security, good old having a plan for what you intend to do with data and having permission to use it. There are very basic things about governance and due diligence that didn't stop being necessary and stop being true just because we have novel processing. So I was trying to understand which portion of the entire inherent and then residual risk picture that we were dealing with was fundamental to the nature of the technology and which bits were just good data governance, good risk management, giving people the accountability that they felt like they couldn't have because it was novel. Mm. Yeah, right. Why reinvent the wheel? You, you don't need to. Or working out which parts of the wheel you needed to reinvent. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's, again, it's when these new technologies come out, it's easy to think that this is going to, this is a whole new sector. This is the new frontier. But like you said, there are pieces we can bring from other areas. And I know that with, with machine learning and ML ops, as it's called, which I spend a lot of time in, that's like my playground and a lot of people talk about how we don't need to reinvent the wheel when it comes to ML ops. We can really lean on DevOps and take all these best practices that they've cultivated for so many years and bring those into ML ops. But which pieces do we need to bring and which ones don't hold up because now we're with machine learning and it's not just the DevOps piece. So that's a great point backtracking a little bit and rewinding, I want to touch on something else that you just mentioned, which was being very mindful of what we share, who we share with, where we share, and maybe looking at like, what are ways or what are the right ways to think about our personal data? I think, I think something that I've pivoted towards, I, I started like most people do, um, who are remotely mindful is like, you know, about me, it's my data. It's mine. It belongs to me. It's my property. But I evolved past that when I realized and sort of really internalized the fact there's no concept of data ownership in something like uh, the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation in Europe. Uh, There's a concept of data custodianship, but your data is really um, an inalienable part of you. It is it is a um, a portion of you that is reusable and separate in one way, but in the same way that harms that come to it, things that can hurt you that happen to it, that are created with it, likely flow back to you. You can't detach yourself from the potential harms that you end up in a bucket of people who are labelled as less intelligent, or you end up in a bucket of people who are labeled as criminal or you can, or unreliable and that finds itself into a hiring data set those harms flow back to you so your rights need to flow to your data in its various iterations of use but that's a bit esoteric um essentially what we need to do every day is um pause for thought there's nothing more practical than that um 
if it's totally impossible to work out what these people actually want from your data, if they are saying, asking for, if you've got that spidey sense feeling that they're asking for more than they need to do something, you know, why do you want my date of birth for that? Why do you want my gender for that? You know, why do you need my address for that? I'm not registering with you. Why do they need those things? If, if, it, if your spidey sense is triggering and um, what you're waiting to do is something you don't have to do that day, swerve it, leave it, move on, or sign up for a throwaway address, um, proton mail address, for instance. You can have as many of those as you like for free um, and just use it for that purpose. Then if, if it's something you really want to do, but you're thinking, oh, if I get tons of spam off this, I'll be really upset. Or if it ends up in a breach, um, you'll be able to recognize it because it's a because it's a brand new address you used or something like that. You've also got sites that will generate phone numbers if they want the phone number and they're not actually needing to contact you. Um, if you just look up dummy no phone number or fake phone number, it'll generate a mobile number for you to use, that kind of thing. So those are all kind of tips. And I mean, services like Have I Been Pawned as well, um, you know, as it sounds, Have I Been, but P-W-N-E-D um, with Troy Hunt's site if you put all your main email addresses into there they'll ping you if you turn up in a breach somewhere so you can change your passwords as soon as possible at least you know if something's gone wrong yeah those are that's brilliant i hadn't heard about the phone number one now i'm going to start using that and also there is the other option that i see a lot of people doing where you just put the plus at the end of the normal email so it's like my name plus whatever the subscription is or whatever the, yes. uh, and then at whatever uh, email client.com. And then if you do get a piece of mail that isn't from that client, you'll know, hey, this was because I put I've my email. To someone. Yeah, exactly. They've done something that's a little bit sketchy with my email. And so you have a clear path back. Uh, so Moving on then, well, actually, let's not move on just yet, because I wanted to ask too about something else you said, which was that third-party cookies are dying a slow death. Can you go into that more, and why do you think that? Um, I mean, we've, we've, we've had a denial that um, the internet can work without third-party cookies. Yeah, essentially Google is at the epicenter of that. There was there was the there's always been the narrative that, you know, you've got a free internet, hard luck. And it's just how it is. You know, your your data for as long as we use it for whatever purpose we, we see fit is 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 the price you pay for access to sites and various other free things. Um that wasn't going to wash. It became apparent that that wasn't going to wash. There was an awful lot of argument about it was a, um, a freely given and informed consent for that. Well, no, it isn't. No, nobody really understood what they were signing up to Cambridge Analytica, whether you think that that was illegal and beyond the pale or just an outing of normal process. Because um, there was a lot of, what are you fussed about? This has always been going on from, from techies, which wasn't very helpful because a lot of people had heard it for the first time and were really upset and felt they'd been really disrespected and taken advantage of. And um, we, we forget that lots of people, like, you know, our aunts, uncles, cousins who are not in the trade are really shocked when people take advantage like that. They really don't think it's going to happen. They really don't think when they sign up that that's going to be done. Some are cynical, some are not. But um, sorry, totally lost my thread. Uh, where did I go? Um, 
say your question again and then I'll circle back. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's totally fine because I I'm not sure. Oh, the third party, how how they're dying a slow death. Yes. That was it. Yeah, okay. That's fine. All right. Yeah. So the reason why um I think third party cookies are on the way out is because they had to be, because there was no other place for them to go that was going to be tolerated by a whole lot of players. Um, the, the second shoe to drop on that was when this mechanism I described earlier about taking elements of your data as you browse to place ads that might be suitable for you as a browsing person in these spaces that all sites leave ready to have these programmatic ads landed in them. Um, it turned out that the conversion rates for that and the kind of quality of sites those ads were landing in was giving virtually no appreciable return over old fashioned um, advertising on the kind of sites that were conducive to your brand and a little bit of demographic analysis of content-based advertising. Um, so there ceased to be a business case that was to, that remained workable in many ways, but it, the, the can was kicked down the road until they could design an alternative. So you've got a few things that have come through. You've got AMP is one. You've seen a lot of websites where it's got AMP ahead of it. That's, that's the mechanism where... Um, Google in return for um, speeding up loading of sites. That's the AMP part of it. But what it does is it makes them look like they're the first party because it goes via their infrastructure. So it kind of bypasses that whole third party cookie conversation mm. because they look like they're the first party. Um, and the um, the flock stuff, the cohorts, that's going back to supposedly the old fashioned, more old fashioned days about advertising to a cohort, a group of your peers that you look like, sound like, have similar interests to. So they put you in one of these audience groups or cohorts and then advertise to you. But there is a lot of debate about um, how personal or not all that data still remains, the ability to, to single you out from your collective cohorts you are part of, because there's, there's the whole PII versus personal data debate, which is a very distinct separate conversation and often that splits down developer and um regulatory lines in terms of which definition people prefer mm. so you sent over something about the post office scandal and you linked to a wiki page that we can put in the show notes can you explain briefly what happened there i've referred to this a lot because although it's not really about AI it's about machine-led error that was overly trusted and then doubled down on and defended by the powers that be because people had reputations staked in the outcomes this was post office um workers sub postmasters people who worked in uh post offices around the country and they have for them responsibility to make sure that they balance the books and the tails of the money they take for stamps and parcels and everything else and it was throwing up financial errors in those systems new technology new software systems that had been installed were throwing up errors now um for a long while when those errors were thrown up those staff members were told that it was their mistake they must have made an error or they must have stolen some of them did actually cook the books because what they found out is that they couldn't actually correct these errors. So they put their own money in or took some money out to make the books balance because they were consistently being told that they were at fault. Now, some of these people were jailed and there are mental health problems, severe mental health problems. And there are also 
um, at least one suicide that people are arguing can be directly attributed to the attrition that these people suffered. Um, they were they were pushed through court case after court case after court case all the way up to the high court before people acknowledged that it was actually the system at fault. Um, and before they were, these postmasters were exonerated and cases are still going through that process. Um, and this is about blind trust. And this is what I saw coming, which is why I ended up um, making the decision to volunteer so much of my time to get up to speed properly with AI and design better risk-based ways of bringing this to decision makers. Because you say you need to be technical on trying to design ways where we can surface useful intelligence at a level that isn't technical to signpost where extra investment of time probably is justified, but you only get maybe one slide's worth of bullet points to talk to the people who really hold the purse strings and who can halt something that's a juggernaut that's moving forward. So that's the part I'm trying to play um, as the translator, because we, we are trusting blindly because there's so much advantage to be gained from doing this. And even if we don't achieve the outcomes we're expecting with systems, the data product that's being accumulated is still enough of a business benefit for people to potentially continue on beyond all sense and be after while people are getting hurt for quite a long time. And so that blind faith that you're talking about in, in this technology is, is just because they see so many upsides? Yeah, I think this is, it happens with any novel technology where there's um, a knowledge gap um, while you can't consistently translate because either it's moving so fast out of um, the bleeding edges into the product phase that um, almost everything that you can write and talk about is, is changing almost monthly to be something new. But this is um, now at the place where models are coming out and almost um, immediately being banged into quite standard types of solutions like hiring solutions or um, benefits triage or support triage or security triage and, and medical research. You, you've got very novel things that are taking a very, very rapid route into proof of concept and, and into live use and then very inelastically staying there. Um, without sufficient exception management. And what we've got is um, a, a pushback on any regulation or governance because there have been a lot of crimes committed in the name of governance. And I don't mean crimes with the law, I mean sort of crimes against people. I've seen horrifically done risk management and governance that is just a work creation scheme and a box ticking exercise. That's not what I'm about. It needs to be easy to do, but people push back on it. They say that it's either regulation or innovation there's never the twain shall meet that's ridiculous totally unconstrained change until sufficient people get hurt that somebody has to step in as an emergency is not what anybody wants we need to have systems that alert for harms we need to have some semblance of prohibition or a hard stop where harms are potentially going to scale to a disastrous extent very quickly if we don't have sufficient innovation in the monitoring and oversight space. Um, and this is a painful part of the journey we're going through. And um, it, we should stop picking sides and start talking to each other. We should find the good people on both sides and start collaborating better. Do you feel there's areas right now that could be a potential repeat for this 
post office scandal? Um, where we're plugging AI into public services automation, where it uh, has implications for immediate human rights need. So where we have um, sentencing, asylum uh, deci related decisions, immig other immigration decisions, where we have um, maybe triage of access to medical resources, um, because of immediate need, where we have rating of children. We've got this, one of those areas that really, really deeply, deeply concerns me because of the longitudinal nature of the risk is we've got a lot of effective AI where we have advertised capability to understand intent psychologically of what's being monitored and found based on um, indicators, maybe it's expression, maybe it's speed of typing on keyboard, maybe it's eye movement, maybe it's keywords interacting with social media, maybe it's a combination of all of those, creating a score and a weighting in a model that says that child is potentially emotionally disturbed or potentially being radicalized or potentially suicidal. And those labels are not based on anything more than tail data that can't predict intent. There is no such thing as mind reading in real life or amongst machines, there are potentially novel and helpful correlations we can find. But if we are creating these labels that get layered into the next data set and get associated with value judgments about these kids and go with them through credit reference agencies and through insurance companies and through hiring systems in future, those are things that really concern me that we need to be paying attention to more than we are right now. Well, I could sit here and talk to you all afternoon about so many pieces of this. I'd love to go down so many more roads, but I'd want to be respectful of your time. So I'm going to end with this last question. Sarah, are you a robot? <laughs> well, I did argue that um, we keep talking about personal data like something we give to companies and we can get back. There are so many derived insights about us that are aggregating into something that is a more than a sum of our traditional meat space parts. And in future, I fully expect to be working beside myself. I fully expect to have potentially a cadre of different me's that I will send off to different meetings that will contribute content in different ways. And I am hoping to see them remunerated adequately or to have a formal volunteering agreement so people just don't take them and plug them to their own chatbots and then use them because they like how Sarah does things. So um, no, I'm not a robot, but in future, I could be my own derived digital descendant. And I expect that to be treated with respect. Wow. That may be one of the best answers I've gotten for that. I have not <laughs> heard that idea before. And now you're going to yeah, I'm going to be thinking about that one quite a bit. So thank you for coming on here. And thank you for opening these doors in my mind, helping me to see things also educating me about privacy and how I can be more private on my, my internet. Uh, this has been great. And I appreciate you staying with me through, through the little one jumping in my lap and going to sleep. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's she's sweating like crazy right now we're we're in hot hot <laughs> grease and going through a heat wave and so it's a lot of fun she couldn't handle it being awake but anyway oh. this has been brilliant i really appreciate it sarah and thank you again for your time 
Yeah, and you. It's been lovely to chat. Thanks for inviting me.